Chapter 2 of Principles of Economics, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Economics, Book 2 by Alfred Marshall. Chapter 2 Wealth. 1. All wealth consists of desirable things, that is, things which satisfy human wants directly or indirectly, but not all desirable things are reckoned as wealth. The affection of friends, for instance, is an important element of well-being, but it is not reckoned as wealth, except by a poetic license. Let us then begin by classifying desirable things, and then consider which of them should be accounted as elements of wealth. In the absence of any short term in common use to represent all desirable things, or things that satisfy human wants, we may use the term goods for that purpose. Desirable things, or goods, are material, or personal and immaterial. Material goods consist of useful material things, and of all rights to hold, or use, or derive benefits from material things, or to receive them at a future time. Thus they include the physical gifts of nature, land, and water, air, and climate, the products of agriculture, mining, fishing, and manufacture, buildings, machinery, and implements, mortgages, and other bonds, shares in public and private companies, all kinds of monopolies, patent rights, copyrights, also rights of way and other rights of usage. Lastly, opportunities of travel, access to good scenery, museums, etc., are the embodiment of material facilities, external to a man, though the faculty of appreciating them is internal and personal. A man's non-material goods fall into two classes. One consists of his own qualities and faculties for action and for employment, such, for instance, as business ability, professional skill, or the faculty of deriving recreation from reading or music. All these lie within himself and are called internal. The second class are called external because they consist of relations beneficial to him with other people. Such, for instance, were the labor dues and personal services of various kinds which the ruling classes used to require from their serfs and other dependents. But these have passed away, and the chief instances of such relations beneficial to their owner nowadays are to be found in the goodwill and business connection of traders and professional men. Again, goods may be transferable or non-transferable. Among the latter are to be classed a person's qualities and faculties for action and employment, that is, his internal goods. Also such part of his business connection as depends on personal trust in him and cannot be transferred as part of his vendable goodwill. Also the advantages of climate, light, air, and his privileges of citizenship and rights and opportunities of making use of public property. Those goods are free which are not appropriated and are afforded by nature without requiring the effort of man. The land in its original state was a free gift of nature, but in settled countries it is not a free good from the point of view of the individual. Wood is still free in some Brazilian forests. The fish of the sea are free generally, but some sea fisheries are jealously guarded for the exclusive use of members of a certain nation and may be classed as national property. Oyster beds that have been planted by men are not free in any sense, those that have grown naturally are free in every sense, if they are not appropriated. If they are private property, they are still free gifts from the point of view of the nation. 
but since the nation has allowed its rights in them to become vested in private persons they are not free from the point of view of the individual and the same is true of private rights of fishing in rivers but wheat grown on free land and the fish that have been landed from free fisheries are not free for they have been acquired by labor two we may now pass to the question which classes of a man's goods are to be reckoned as part of his wealth the question is one as to which there is some difference of opinion but the balance of argument as well as of authority seems clearly to incline in favor of the following answer when a man's wealth is spoken of simply and without any interpretation clause in the context it is to be taken to be his stock of two classes of goods in the first class are those material goods to which he has by law or custom private rights of property and which are therefore transferable and exchangeable these it will be remembered to include not only such things as land and houses furniture and machinery and other material things which may be in his single private ownership but also any shares in public companies debenture bonds mortgages and other obligations which he may hold requiring others to pay money or goods to him on the other hand the debts which he owes to others may be regarded as negative wealth and they must be subtracted from his gross possessions before his true net wealth can be found services and other goods which pass out of existence in the same instant that they come into it are of course not part of the stock of wealth in the second class are those immaterial goods which belong to him are external to him and serve directly as the means of enabling him to acquire material goods thus it excludes all his own personal qualities and faculties even those which enable him to earn his living because they are internal and it excludes his personal friendships in so far as they have no direct business value but it includes his business and professional connections the organization of his business and where such things exist his property in slaves in labor dues etc this use of the term wealth is in harmony with the usage of ordinary life and at the same time it includes those goods and only those which come clearly within the scope of economic science as defined in book one and which may therefore be called economic goods for it includes all those things external to a man which one belong to him and do not belong equally to his neighbors and therefore are distinctly his and which too are directly capable of a money measure a measure that represents on the one side the efforts and sacrifices by which they have been called into existence and on the other the wants which they satisfy three a broader view of wealth may indeed be taken for some purposes but then recourse must be had to a special interpretation clause to prevent confusion thus for instance the carpenter's skill is as direct a means of enabling him to satisfy other people's material wants and therefore indirectly his own as are the tools in his work-basket and perhaps it may be convenient to have a term which will include it as part of his wealth in a broader use pursuing the lines indicated by adam smith and followed by most continental economists we may define personal wealth so as to include all those energies faculties and habits which directly contribute to making people industrially efficient together with those business connections and associations of any kind which we have already reckoned as part of wealth in the narrower use of the term industrial faculties have a further claim to be regarded as economic in the fact that their value is as a rule capable of some sort of indirect measurement the question whether it is ever worth while to speak of them as wealth is merely one of convenience though it has been much discussed as if it were one of principle 
confusion would certainly be caused by using the term wealth by itself when we desire to include a person's industrial qualities wealth simply should always mean external wealth only but little harm and some good seem likely to arise from the occasional use of the phrase material and personal wealth four but we still have to take account of those material goods which are common to him with his neighbors and which therefore it would be a needless trouble to mention when comparing his wealth with theirs though they may be important for some purposes and especially for comparisons between the economic conditions of distant places or distant times these goods consist of the benefits which he derives from living in a certain place at a certain time and being a member of a certain state or community they include civil and military security and the right and opportunity to make use of public property and institutions of all kinds such as roads gaslight etc and the rights to justice or to a free education the townsmen and the countrymen have each of them for nothing many advantages which the other either cannot get at all or can get only at great expense other things being equal one person has more real wealth in its broadest sense than another if the place in which the former lives has a better climate better roads better water more wholesome drainage and again better newspapers books and places of amusement and instruction house-room food and clothing which would be insufficient in a cold climate may be abundant in a warm climate on the other hand that warmth which lessens men's physical needs and makes them rich with but a slight provision of material wealth makes them poor in the energy that procures wealth many of these things are collective goods that is goods which are not in private ownership and this brings us to consider wealth from the social as opposed to the individual point of view five let us then look at those elements of the wealth of a nation which are commonly ignored when estimating the wealth of the individuals composing it the most obvious forms of such wealth are public material property of all kinds such as roads and canals buildings and parks gas-works and water-works though unfortunately many of them have been secured not by public savings but by public borrowings and there is the heavy negative wealth of a large debt to be set against them but the Thames has added more to the wealth of England than all its canals, and perhaps even than all its railroads. And though the Thames is a free gift of nature, except in so far as its navigation has been improved, while the canal is the work of man, yet we ought for many purposes to reckon the Thames a part of England's wealth. German economists often lay stress on the non-material elements of national wealth, and it is right to do this in some problems relating to national wealth, but not in all scientific knowledge indeed wherever discovered soon becomes the property of the whole civilized world and may be considered as cosmopolitan rather than as specifically national wealth the same is true of mechanical inventions and of many other improvements in the arts of production and it is true of music but those kinds of literature which lose their force by translation may be regarded as in a special sense the wealth of those nations in whose language they are written and the organization of a free and well-ordered state is to be regarded for some purposes as an important element of national wealth but national wealth includes the individual as well as the collective property of its members and in estimating the aggregate sum of their individual wealth we may save some trouble by omitting all debts and other obligations due to one member of a nation from another for instance so far as the english national debt and the bonds of an english railway are owned within the nation we can adopt the simple plan of counting the railway itself as part of the national wealth and neglecting railway and government bonds altogether 
but we still have to deduct for those bonds etc issued by the english government or by private englishmen and held by foreigners and to add for those foreign bonds etc held by englishmen cosmopolitan wealth differs from national wealth much as that differs from individual wealth in reckoning it debts due from members of one nation to those of another may conveniently be omitted from both sides of the account again just as rivers are important elements of national wealth the ocean is one of the most valuable properties of the world the notion of cosmopolitan wealth is indeed nothing more than that of national wealth extended over the whole area of the globe individual and national rights to wealth rest on the basis of civil and international law or at least of custom that has the force of law an exhaustive investigation of the economic conditions of any time and place requires therefore an inquiry into law and custom and economics owes much to those who have worked in this direction but its boundaries are already wide and the historical and juridical basis of the conceptions of property are vast subjects which may best be discussed in separate treatises six the notion of value is intimately connected with that of wealth and a little may be said about it here the word value says adam smith has two different meanings and sometimes expresses the utility of some particular object and sometimes the power of purchasing other goods which the possession of that object conveys but experience has shown that it is not well to use the word in the former sense the value that is the exchange value of one thing in terms of another at any place in time is the amount of that second thing which can be got there and then in exchange for the first thus the term value is relative and expresses the relation between two things at a particular place in time civilized countries generally adopt gold or silver or both as money instead of expressing the values of lead and tin and wood and corn and other things in terms of one another we express them in terms of money in the first instance and call the value of each thing thus expressed its price if we know that a ton of lead will exchange for fifteen sovereigns at any place in time while a ton of tin will exchange for ninety sovereigns we say that their prices then and there are fifteen pounds and ninety pounds respectively and we know that the value of a ton of tin in terms of lead is six tons then and there the price of everything rises and falls from time to time and place to place and with every such change the purchasing power of money changes so far as that thing goes if the purchasing power of money rises with regard to some things and at the same time falls equally with regard to equally important things its general purchasing power or its power of purchasing things in general has remained stationary this phrase conceals some difficulties which we must study later on but meanwhile we may take it in its popular sense which is sufficiently clear and we may throughout this volume neglect possible changes in the general purchasing power of money thus the price of anything will be taken as representative of its exchange value relatively to things in general or in other words as representative of its general purchasing power but if inventions have increased man's power over nature very much then the real value of money is better measured for some purposes in labor than in commodities this difficulty however will not much affect our work in the present volume which is only a study of the foundations of economics End of chapter two.